Good morning, everyone, evening, afternoon, wherever you happen to be when you see this. I'm Asha Nayaswamy, and I'm appearing here at this time slot every morning, Monday to Thursday, and Saturday, which is where we are here for the duration. It's about March 21st, I think, uh, 2020. Uh, today we're going to talk about karma, because uh, the situation we're in, uh, going through this adventure with the virus, um, it seems like it's a really good question. <laughs> and a couple of weeks ago, when uh, this whole cycle began to unfold, I gave a Sunday service uh, here in Palo Alto, Ananda Palo Alto, which you can find online somewhere. and. Uh, one of the things I commented about was something that Swami Kriyananda had said a number of years ago when there had been somebody actually was commissioned to do a study and they announced that <laughs> any woman who had reached the age of 40 and who was unmarried uh, was more likely to be killed by a terrorist than she was to ever get married again. <laughs> now, how they ever did that, I have no idea. This was like 35 or 40 years ago when terrorism was really not even a very high on the world radar. But it was just, it was sort of one of those things that swept through the women's movement. And there was a great deal of consternation because many women hoped to have a, a lifelong love relationship and it was very depressing. Um, but Swami's comment was very interesting at the time. He said, there's no such thing as statistics. He said, the on, there's only individual karma. Now, of course, there, are, there is such a thing as statistics. You can, there's a science of statistics, but what he meant was that our lives, our individual lives, are not guided by the probability of the population. Our individual lives are run by God and our, and our superconscious self according to our own personal destiny. Somebody told me later that Deepak Chopra said, 98% of all statistics are wrong. <laughs> which is his way of saying the same thing, which is he's using statistics to tell you what the probability of accuracy is. So I want to just, because I, I only have a 30 minutes window here, I want to talk a little bit about sort of what karma is and how it operates, and most importantly, how we can work within it. Uh, on my uh, YouTube channel, Inner Life with Asha, there is a four-part series about the chakras, and it's, it's received a lot of... Um, People have been very grateful for it. I recorded it a number of years ago. I'm standing in front of a curtain with this chart. And uh, it, it really does go through very carefully, much more in detail than I can do now. In order to, now let me just try to say this properly. Bhakti, which is devotion to God and love for God, is the answer to everything. There's just no question about that. But some of us, including me, find that understanding things, even uh, understanding how the processes work and having a way to think about it with my intellectual mind gives courage to my heart. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to work with here. And there are certain principles of Sanatana Dharma. And Sanatana Dharma is sometimes called the eternal religion. And the definition I like the, the best is that which is. Now science, Western science primarily, which looks at the external world and tries to understand it, 
um, discovers patterns, the way the patterns work. And they do experiments, and those experiments confirm or, or debunk the theory of how things work. And interestingly, Swami has pointed out that Western scientists have gone from the outside, Eastern scientists, which is to say yogis, have gone from the inside, but they're all coming to the same point. Uh, this world is not, the material world is just a field of energy, and that energy is, is, seems to be conscious and many great scientists say it looks suspiciously like the entire world is just a great thought. And these are the principles of Sanat and Dharma. So the principles of Sanat and Dharma that are essential for right living are, the un are karma, which requires reincarnation, an understanding of the chakras. Um, the yugas really help because it, it makes sense of the external world. And of course, Satchitananda which is behind everything, is ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. So I find that my devotion is powerfully strengthened if I understand the principles and I can observe and watch the principles. And so in a situation where there is so much generalized anxiety and everyone wonders whether I or those I love are, are suddenly going to find themselves tumbling down this um, cliffside, of illness and confusion and conceivably even being pulled out of our bodies and we have to think about all these actions you know just understanding how it works would help now the basic premise of karma is is quite simply that everything in the universe is interconnected and that um, be, that what we identify with what we define as ourselves um, it stays with us this is, Master defines ego as the soul identified with the body. The physical body is just the material manifestation of the body, which is the energy body, which is really our true self. And beyond the energy body is the, the thought body and the infinite. I'm, I can't explain all of these in great detail. I'm, I'm wanting to get somewhere else. So I'm just sort of laying the groundwork here. But because we... Uh, we, we are identified with our own actions and our own thoughts, they stay with us as an energy pattern. I mean, think of it like this. I was talking to a friend yesterday. This is what made me think that discussion of karma would be helpful. And she was saying that when, when the shelter-in-place edict came down through the California government, she said she found herself, she has a lovely home, She's, she's well taken care of, she's relatively young and healthy. All, nothing, nothing in the situation itself was painful, but she said she absolutely panicked. Just went into a state of panic at the thought of being uh, in any way confined to quarters. And as she reflected on it, she, she had this intuition, which may have been right. And a lot of times when I or others have past life intuitions, my feeling about them is, if they fit the circumstances, it, it, it helps us to visualize what's happening. And whether it's actually literally true or apocryphal, which is to say it fits the situation and therefore it could be true, I find it helps us to understand. So she had this strong feeling that she'd been a Jew in Europe in the last world war and somehow she'd hidden in her home, but eventually she'd been captured. and so. What happened in her mind was the idea that if she was hidden in her home, 
that there were going to all be all these terrible consequences that were going to come. And so the fact of having to be hidden unleashed all those realities. And I, of course, accepted it as exceedingly likely to be true. But then we went back and forth, and this is what I was saying to her. Because we identify with what happens to us, and this is where the chakras come in, so I encourage you to look at that four-part course. The chakras are the energy um, storage containers, so to speak. I think of them as like big jars in which we keep putting pennies, you know, and you have an empty jar and then pretty the jar fills up and each one of those pennies in each one of the seven chakras, the six chakras, primarily five chakras, from the throat to the base of the spine, are the operative ones for this discussion. They, they are filled up with energy patterns that are based on our experiences. If I was hiding in my house and I was discovered by the Gestapo and dragged off to a concentration camp and killed, that could leave a strong impression. That could be something that I would remember. I, someone told me about a past life of mine in which um, my father couldn't take care of me after my mother died, so he took me to a railroad station several stops from our, our home, and I was just a child, and he just left me there. I don't know if it's true or not, but it feels true. And also the interesting thing is when that was told to me, immediately, I, uh, for a long time, every time I talk about that, my eyes would fill with tears. Now it's passed. But immediately I thought, that was a very hard life. And then the second thing that came was, it made me very strong. It was just interesting. It was like, that was my immediate response when she said that to me. Well, what I've begun to understand, and this is just basic psychology, but reincarnation takes a, you know, expands the issue, which is we are being, we are being defined by a great number of things that we're not aware of. And what I personally have learned, especially in the last 10 or 15 years of my life, the entire personality, <laughs> the entire personality that I've called myself, that has been operating my whole life, has been defined by this vast number of unresolved, primarily fears, unresolved fears and sorrows, that I've, I've always been trying to protect myself from. And so there's been just a whole way of operating in the world that made perfect sense to me based on these deep impressions, you know, that this is what could happen if I don't protect myself in this way. Now, this is exactly what karma is, and let me sort of try to say it this way. I was starting to say with the chakras. Each of the chakras represents a definition of reality. You know, what is real, what is, la what is lastingly real, and where does happiness come from? What causes sorrow? Now, being taken away from your home and sent to a concentration camp, that's pretty easy to say. That causes sorrow. So I don't want that to happen again. Of course, the only reality is the divine, and every difficult experience brings us closer to the light, but that's a level of reality that exists at the spiritual eye, and it may not always be vibrating at other chakras. So every time we have an experience, it reflects our understanding of reality in the moment that it happens. And then it registers. It just, it registers and it makes a little energy pattern that says, this is what's lastingly real, this is where happiness comes from, this is where sorrow comes from. And because it's energy, it's, it's a living force. It's a magnetic force. 
And it just keeps reaffirming like this. Now, what karma really is, is unlearned lessons. Because eventually, so all the masters promise us, and I believe them wholeheartedly, we will realize that, that the only thing that is lastingly real is Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. And the only cause of suffering is to not remember that. And the only cause of happiness is to always remember that. But we have a lot of what I call alternate theories of happiness, <laughs> which is that if I'm protected in this way, if I, if I have this, if I avoid that, then I will be happy. And these are all alternate theories of happiness that are not, if we remember God, if we live in the presence of God, we are in joy, and if we forget the presence of God, we suffer. And those alternate theories involve family, money, security, health, having my uh, physical comfort, lack of physical pain, you know, uh, just having things my way, according to my ego's idea of pleasure and comfort. And, you know, these are not evil thoughts. These are just uh, sin, Swamiji said, it's just ignorance. It's ignorance of the true source of our happiness. And, and, and because human beings are so pig-headed, <laughs> or because of the way we're made, and these are, the, these are the unanswerable questions, like why did God make the world this way? I haven't the foggiest idea. But here I am in prison, and I figure that if I learn how to get out of prison, then I can worry about who made the prison. That's just my practical way of thinking. But in any case, we find ourselves here. And uh, let me, just a second, I lost my thought. Give me a moment to find it. Oh yes, we're trying out all these alternate theories of happiness. And we learn when we learn. And unfortunately, and I talked about this a couple of days ago, you know, suffering is one of the way we learn, one of the ways we learn, because we cling to what we know until we actually experience a higher reality. Even Gandhi, who was, Mahatma Gandhi, who was so disciplined, he said, you should never give up a pleasure until you replace it with a higher pleasure. Because it won't be a real replacement, otherwise it will just be a suppression. And even in the Bhagavad Gita, the phrase is, of what avail is it to suppress? We have to actually understand that I really don't want this anymore. I don't want this fear because I don't need this fear because God is always with me. I don't need to fear physical pain. I don't need to fear loss. I asked Swamiji, or someone else asked Swamiji once, how can you tell when you overcome a certain karma, when you really overcome it? He said, when you no longer fear it. That was a very interesting answer. I, and I sat down and I thought, how many things do I fear? You know, it's a, it's a fairly long list, which is humbling. But it also says, okay, God, you and I have a lot of work to do. And therefore, I'm going to need to have a lot of experiences. You know, I had a very tiny experience recently, very tiny, especially in the context of the present world. But it w it's been so interesting to me because its tininess made it easy for me to see the lesson. Uh, for those of you who have known me for a long time, if you look at um, videos of me from before the beginning of this year, I almost have always been wearing this Rudraksha Mala. Rudraksha seeds are these sheets dedicated to Shiva, and the malas, what, you use, what I use for Kriya, 100, uh, 108 beads with markers, every 12 for your Kriyas. 
I've had that mala since 1972. It's the only mala I've ever had. It's been to every holy place I've visited in the world. It's been blessed repeatedly by Swami. It has had all these little things in it, different beads and things, all this. It was, it was, my first most precious possession is a meditation blanket that Swamiji gave me that was his. My second was that mala. I lost it in Israel. Then January, we were in the Sea of Galilee. We were at, in Tiberias in this hotel. Um, we checked out of the hotel. I always, I always have that mala. I always know where it is. When I wake up, I put it on. In the late afternoon, I didn't have it. And efforts to find it have, you know, been nothing. Interestingly, I didn't, there wasn't, I, I just didn't even flinch, just like this. It's gone, okay. I would have expected some reaction. What was so interesting to me, and I just thought of it this morning, it's a relief to have lost it because I was so attached to it. And so, it literally, there was always a little bit of subconscious tension that I might lose that ball. And now I've lost it. There it is. Now, I can't quite bring that to the loss of my health, the, you know, the loss of financial security, the loss of my home, the loss of my body, the loss of, of the people that I love in my life. I can't go there. But it was fascinating. And see, I've heard Swami say this so many times. He said, even in pleasure, there's always a little bit of pain because you know it's not going to last in this world because the only eternally lasting reality is the divine. And I've heard him say that many, many times. And weirdly, this is the first time I really understood it. Oh yeah, that subconscious tension is gone. And now I feel more free. I thought, wow, what if? What if I could get rid of the subconscious tension of all those things that I'm afraid of? And unfortunately, what Master says is, the way we release things is we experience them. He said everything, every alternate theory of happiness, and that's not his word, that's mine, every alternate theory of happiness that you're no longer attracted to is because you've tried it, you've experienced it, and you realize that it won't bring you what you want. Now, of course, how much loss and sorrow does that teaching imply? And yet, all of us know the tremendous relaxation and freedom that is there when we're not even tempted. When we can just look at something and say, why would I want that? Why would I want to be mean like that? Why would I steal that from someone? Why would I behave so unkindly? You know, why would I desire to have all that stuff? You know, I see, I see people, it's just the way I am. I think I've had it and lost it a lot of times. I still have comfort, I still have countless fears. Please, I'm not, and you know me, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm more than I am. But everything that we do understand tells us what it, would, what it could feel like if we could just move to the next level. And so karma is alternate theories of happiness that we haven't yet debunked. <laughs> and it's important, therefore, that we not hold back from life. Swami Kriyananda, Master himself, they didn't hold back from life. Swami was absolutely fearless, and I believe I've talked about this in the last some of these broadcasts. He was absolutely fearless because he wasn't afraid of either having or losing. It was, everything was what it was going to be. 
he'd, he'd had and he'd lost enough in countless incarnations to just what comes of itself, let it come. And what's taken away from us of itself, let it go. And so karma is every aspect of creation of material life, material karma is every aspect of material life that we haven't yet come to peace with, that we haven't been able to face, as they say, as we say in the festival, with calm acceptance and joy. So we find ourselves in a, in a very interesting karmic situation, which is individual and group and global and national and family. It's all, all of it at the same time. And our individual karma has, has aligned us, the, the magnetism in our chakras, and I'm, I explain this more in that four-part series, all of those little vortices of unlearned lessons uh, have a, 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 a magnetic force. This being an energy universe, it responds to that. So the energy force of our chakras moves us, brings us. You know, we make all these decisions. We don't know why we make them. We find ourselves attracted or repelled, um, you know, have, finding opportunities open or doors slam. And, you know, we can sort of see it, but it's all of this huge magnetic force in our chakras that's just moving us through this world to align us right where we need to be. Now the other part about karma, and this, these, which is karma is these energy fields, energy vortices in the spine, in simple words. That's how they're stored. That's why it's, an, it's, an ener it's the energy body. We go in, the energy body goes in and out of material bodies. That's what reincarnation is. But when the material body falls away, the energy pattern remains. And we go to the astral world that matches our energy pattern. We spend time there until some of those, the, some of those energy patterns that require a material body to resolve draw us back into a physical body. And we, and we, we choose the one where we're going to get to face those unlearned lessons. So the thing about karma, though, is because it's all an energy pattern, and magnetic fields interact, and the stronger magnetic field in influences the weaker magnetic field. So those karmic patterns remain buried until the superconscious capacity to face and resolve them. Now, that doesn't mean we face and resolve them in one lifetime, but the process can begin. The superconscious capacity to absorb that magnetic field, that magnetic field of karma, will pull it up into manifestation. Now, that is a, a lot of words to say the single bhakti phrase, God will never give you a test that is bigger than you can handle. He'll push you right to the edge. Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, sometimes I wish God didn't have so much faith in me. <laughs> but it's, it's a fact that the karma won't come to the surface to be faced until the superconscious magnetism, until the superconscious magnetism pulls it. And that's where Swami said, there's no such thing as statistics. There's just your magnetic relationship to all of creation. And your magnetic relationship, which is your karmic relationship to all of creation, will put you, will put me exactly where we need to be at exactly the moment that we're getting ready to handle it. Now, 
I'll go into Kriya Yoga for just a minute. Kriya Yoga is the conscious moving of energy through the spine and through the chakras. Those of us, you who haven't yet really learned to meditate seriously, sheltering in place is an ideal time to learn. And Ananda and other sources, but also Ananda's, you can spend, I think, 24 hours a day now with Ananda online all over the world and learn whatever you don't know. But the practice of Kriya, by the, by the use of willpower and devotion, we actually send an upward moving magnetic field consistently through the chakras. And what that does is that draws all the lesser magnetic realities um, into itself and raises it up to the spiritual eye. This is how Kriya can uh, resolve karma without it ever coming into manifestation. Because it's just an energy pattern. And if the power of my devotion to God is stronger, if I really realize that God is the only answer and that I have nothing to fear, even if I realize it this much more than I realized it yesterday, every karmic cycle that's just a tiny bit smaller than this realization gets eaten by that realization and disappears. And I don't have to live through it. Or it starts coming up to the surface. The image that I've always had, I always think of it like that. The image I have is when I was, when I was a child learning to sew, um, I had, I had this little sewing kit, and I somehow had a couple of magnets in the sewing kit. And when I'd get bored with sewing, I'd use the magnet and I'd play with the pins, you know, put them across the table, see how close it would be before the pins got sucked into the magnet. And until very recently, I still had a magnet in my sewing kit. Recently, I lost it. But um, the, the point is, I have always had that picture in my mind about the power of a magnet to attract and how it can suddenly move and everything can shift. And so I've always thought of of Kriya, or just gradual awakening to higher realities, is like, I, I think of, of all our karma is like paper clips buried in the sand, and our spiritual effort is like running this magnet over the paper clips. And maybe we keep picking up a bigger and bigger magnet, and then all the karma begins to sort of come to the surface. <laughs> and it's moving toward manifestation, but it doesn't pop out until there's enough magnetism to draw it out. So, what is good karma, what is bad karma? You know, to be put in a situation where there's so much magnetism that long-buried fears are coming to the surface to be faced and transcended, is that actually bad karma? That's just like, in my own life in the last 10 or 15 years, tremendous number of long-buried suppressed fears have, have uh, come to the surface. Circumstances have pushed them forward, timing my own spiritual efforts, and the absolute grace of God has, has given me, made me big enough to be able to receive them. Even just to be told, as I was by that woman, that you were abandoned in that railroad station. You know, I don't have any idea whether she was telling me the truth. It was her psychic interpretation. But my goodness, that single thought has provided so much grist for the mill. Because I've been able to see how many threads of reality, you know, got embedded in me from that fear. Wow. And it just was running me the whole time. You see, the fact that you don't know it doesn't mean that it's not defining you. So when we finally begin to see who and what we really are and what the project is, that's very, 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 very good karma. Very, very. There was a disciple of Adi Shankaracharya hundreds of years ago, many centuries ago. This is the story that's told. And one of his women disciples 
was very fearful, apparently. She was always anxious, you know, what if, I, what if this happens, what if that happens? And uh, this is the way the story is told. She said, she, the guru was urging something upon her, and she was very nervous about it. But Master, what if I die? And according to the story, he said, well then die. And she did. <laughs> she just fell over and died, just like that. Which, of course, the story itself is like, what do I do with the story like that? But, but I, it occurred to me recently, the Master transcends life and death. Master said he went to the astral world and met his disciples. So when she died, her physical body died, but, and I'm just uh, speculating, but her guru wouldn't have separated from her. So there, there they would be standing now, and she, they would probably be, I'm just making it up, but it could be true. They're both looking at her dead body, and he says something to her like, well, how did that work for you? So, so now your worst fear has been realized, and, 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 so this is how we learn. You know, I'm going to go back to my tiny mala. You know, I was so attached to it and I lost it, now it's gone. And I find myself feeling happier and freer for having lost it. Now, would I feel that way about my own body? Would I feel that way about the people who are closest to me? Would I feel that way, I don't know if I lost my mind, I don't know. But I could, because Satchitananda is the only reality. And every alternate theory of happiness eventually has to be given up. And everything we fear has to be faced and seen for what it really is, which is the blessing hand of God. What interesting, what an interesting opportunity life is for us to find perfect joy. God bless you.